Oh, Father, um, it's easy for us to sing and say words, and we want that to be the intention of our hearts, that Jesus Christ would indeed be more precious to us than anything this world could afford. And yet, Father, we would be duplicitous and careless to think and imagine ourselves to be living like that daily. So help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to let your word dwell in us richly. Help us to let your Holy Spirit prod and poke us and guide and direct us that we would indeed be the salt and the light that we ought to be with our eyes on heaven and fixed on Jesus and able to walk by the things of this world that would only entrap and snare and slow us down. Father, instruct us from your word. Thank you for this great letter that the Apostle Paul penned to young Timothy that is so beneficial to us. Use it well now as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn. Probably for the second to the last time, I invite you to do that to... 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we have been for some months studying through this letter written to young Pastor Timothy by the mighty Apostle Paul, giving instruction as to how to order the church in Ephesus, will be in, as our text, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. Before we read our text and, and lay a foundation for our study, would you do something for me and click on the screen of your mind And go to that iconic character, Jed Clampett. You remember him? An old mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day, he was shooting at some food, and right up through the ground came bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Well, the next thing you know, old Jed, he's a millionaire. And that's the whole basis for the show, isn't it? Loading up, heading to Beverly Hills, you know, millionaire swimming pools, cement ponds. And what made the show so successful was this this tension. Jed and Granny and the family were millionaires. They, I mean, they could blow their nose with $100 bills and throw them away, but they, they thought and lived as if they were poor. And, and they just had this, this lifestyle issue where they had unlimited resource, but they lived as though they were still back in the hills of Appalachia. You know, I think that a lot of us in the American church are like that. We're pretty wealthy. We have almost unlimited resources. But if I said, raise your hand today if you're rich, and I'm not talking about what we've been dwelling on in our communion time, all we are wealthy in Christ, sin forgiven, seated in the heavenlies, sealed unto the day of redemption. That's worth more than money. But I'm talking about money this morning because that's what the Apostle Paul's talking about in this passage. And if I said, raise your hand if you're rich today, probably most of us would not raise our hands and we would think of all the ways we're really struggling and our last name's not Trump and so obviously we're not rich. Well, as we read our text this morning, remember that what we're coming out of was earlier in chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul talked about godliness with contentment was great gain and he went on, if you let your eyes fall back there in fact, to about verse 8 But with having food and raiment, uh, 
with these will be content. And then there's the warning in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich, and he's talking there in that passage about those who want to be rich and the dangers that they fall into. All right. And so he then distracts himself for just a minute. And in fact, let's pick it up with verse 11 as he then charges Timothy with uh, to not be like that. Don't pierce yourself through with all the struggles of the love of money. And then he says, you, O man of God, verse 11, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, get through it. Don't do that. And then he said, don't forget your calling. You were called and about which you made the good confession, verse 12, in the presence of many witnesses. This was a reference to Timothy's ordination. When he stood before the congregation, the apostles laid hands on him and confirmed that he was to be a pastoral leader and a man of God. And he evidently at that time had given a public confession. I am a follower of Christ. I am a doulos, a servant of the Lord Jesus. And he stood fast with his confession. And the Apostle Paul, as he often did, in writing that phrase, I believe it triggered the good confession of our Lord Jesus. Because look what he writes next. And I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. You can just turn the screen off if it's going to flip, okay? Um, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. See, there it was. Look at the phrase in verse 11. He said, you're called and about which you made the good confession. See, in verse 12, excuse me, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That took his mind off of what he was talking about money and the people who desire money and fighting the good fight and living for Jesus no matter what. Made him think about the testimony of our Lord Jesus before Pontius Pilate, because that's what he says, the same words. Who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession? That's where he just said when Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He said, it is as you say. All he had to do was say, nah, not today. And he would have walked free, but he wouldn't do that. He made a good confession. He, he stood firm, knowing it would put him on the cross, knowing that he would be beaten by Roman soldiers, knowing that there would be a price to be paid for confessing the truth. And Paul is reminding Timothy to stand in his good confession, using Christ as his model. That then turns Paul's mind even more towards the Lord Jesus. And he gives this almost a doxology. And you think the book is coming to a close. Let's read it. Verse 14. He made this good confession before Pontius Pilate to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to think about Christ. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He's a, he's a coming Christ, a returning Christ. He who is the blessed and only sovereign. He's a sovereign Lord Jesus, the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the universe who alone has immortality. He has Eternal life, previous and future. He's everlasting Lord Jesus, who dwells in unapproachable light. He's a holy Lord Jesus, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. Speaking of God and then him presenting himself in Christ, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And you think the book's over. But it was really just an interruption in Paul's flow of thought turning from the testimony of Timothy to the testimony of our Lord Jesus to talking about who Christ is and who God is. 
But he still has something on his mind, and it started earlier in verses 8 and 9 with the warning to those who want to be rich, to now giving specific instruction about those who are rich. Okay? So let's read our text now, beginning with verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I want us to break this passage down uh, into six parts. I'm going to make six statements about Paul's teaching here. Um, For those of you who like to take notes, don't get too frustrated this morning because my six points aren't very parallel. They're just six statements out of this passage, okay? And the first one is a word about economic prosperity. Notice that Paul, through Timothy, is addressing the church at Ephesus about those who do have resource. They do have money. And we have here a word about economic prosperity in the church. Now let's take just a minute and let's put in perspective the cultural historical context of the passage. And I want you to think about my dear brothers and sisters in Malawi. You know Yohani and Love Kapesi. If you've been around here very long, you know about them. And I've been there and I tell you all about it. They are just dirt poor in the church there. I mean, when you go to Malawi, those precious brothers, and they're about six hours ahead of us. So at about midnight last night when we were sleeping or should have been sleeping, um, they were rising to start their Sunday there. Um, Soon, Sean Patrick, their president of Finish Line Ministries from Columbus, Ohio, will be here with our young people. You see that notice in the bulletin. Make sure your children are filling their little bottle banks that they made for the orphans there. And today they've worshipped. It would have been fun to be there as they sing with all their might and rejoice in the Lord Jesus. But you know, when you walk in, you recognize right away they're just poor. I mean, their clothes are not that nice. Most of the men and even the women don't wear underwear. They just have a shirt and pants and no socks lots of times if they do have shoes. And if you go to their house, it's maybe one wooden rickety old chair and they've probably found some hardware off a bicycle or something and put a bolt through it and held it together and taken some string and tried to hold it together. And they got this chair. There might be a one page of an outdated calendar with a picture on it that's nailed to the wall. And then there's a grass mat and maybe one extra T-shirt hanging on a nail. And that's it. A couple of beat up aluminum cook pots outside around the corner on the ground. Just nothing. Nothing. Now, you need to remember that in the church at Ephesus, they had people like that. They had people who were without any economic prosperity. They didn't have resource. They didn't have money. But also at the same time, They had wealthy people in the church. So imagine a congregation like ours where we are accustomed to what we call middle class living in America. That is, we all, almost all of us, um, I don't want to overlook anybody who's struggling right now and that kind of thing. But by and large, I think you understand what I'm saying. We are fairly a well-to-do people. Most of us get up, go to work, have a fairly reliable paycheck of some kind. We've been able to establish a home and, and so on. And in the church, 
in Ephesus, there wasn't much of a middle class. It was people who had significant resource, land holdings, some bank accounts. They had good jobs and they employed the poor people or the poor people were employed around or they were a servant class. And so imagine if geographically we came together all of a sudden with our brothers and sisters in Malawi and we are here like this and we come together and we have church together on an ongoing basis. How would you feel? What would you think about? We come in fairly well resourced, haven't been able to decide which of my six suits I'm going to wear today. You know, we got to figure out whether these shoes match this outfit. And then we come in and then our dear sisters and brothers join us and there's no shoes, there's no underwear, there's no perfume, there's the same clothes they've been wearing every day, all week long. So we have people with resource and we have people without resource living in the same church. You can also see why Paul's teaching was a caution earlier in the passage that people who didn't have something, they really thought that money was the answer to their problem and that as they wanted to get rich, they would pierce themselves through with many problems because they might start cutting corners, cheating, lying, stealing, whatever, because they wanted to be rich. But he has a word directly to the wealthy people in the church, a word about those with some economic prosperity. As for the rich in this present age, he's talking about money and things and material resources that are present in the church. I have a word for you, he says. He says the next word that Paul says to Timothy, you're their pastor, charge them. It doesn't mean run at them. He means to charge them, challenge them with a conviction. That they have a responsibility because they're wealthy. So this then automatically brings up the next thought or question, which is, well, who's rich? Are we rich? And how do we apply this passage to us? In the Greek word, there's a nuance in the word that's translated rich, okay? As for the rich in this present age, there's an implication in the Greek word for that person who is rich and translated rich is the idea of someone who is in who has many earthly possessions so let's try our question again if i ask how many rich people are here maybe almost no one would raise their hand i'm not donald trump i'm not rich but if i said how many of us here have many earthly possessions now almost all of us have to raise our hand right But you got in your garage, in your basement, in your closets, in your attics, and out behind the shed. We have all kinds of stuff, right? And so one of the things we have to realize is that we qualify as rich people because we have been immensely resourced with a lot of stuff. The second part of this passage where he's implying those who are rich and the definition of being rich is is someone who would have discretionary resource after they've taken care of their food and their clothing and their shelter. Remember, he already referenced that if you have food earlier in chapter six, if you have food and if you have clothing, and we're going to throw shelter in on that because there's other passages about that. The idea is that if God has met our needs for our daily bread and God has clothed us and we have, we're going to assume that it's okay to at least keep the winter air out and create a a pocket where we can enter in out of the rain and the wind and be warm and take care of our family. He says, then you need to be content with that. Add godliness to it. And that is great gain. 
What we're talking about in this passage when Timothy addresses his congregation based upon the premise that Paul is teaching him and to charge them with, that when he addresses the rich, he's talking to people who have food, who have clothing, and they have shelter, and they have some leftovers. Our Malawian brothers and sisters have food. It's not very good. They have some clothing. They have a little bit of shelter. If they're lucky, it's a metal roof on top of their mud walls instead of a grass roof. That's about all they have. They have tremendous in the church contentment and godliness and joy. He's talking to people who have food, shelter, clothing, and discretionary choices after that. He's talking to us, isn't he? People who have lots of stuff in this world and people who have discretionary income. You say, wait, Pastor Van, you don't understand. By the time I pay my groceries, my gas, I have to pay the license and tax on my snowmobile, my motorcycle, my, my boat, my bass boat. I got to get my hunting license. We got to buy popcorn at the movie theater. I got to pay my cable bill. I have no discretionary income. Uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> You've just made a lot of choices and you live... In this affluent society in which we live, now note that I am not belittling wealth. And the Bible does not belittle wealth, and we've talked about that before. But the great challenge is for those who have discretionary income and for those who have much of this world's goods, we have a great responsibility. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to teach and challenge the church about. So now let me ask you a question again. How many of you have a lot of stuff in this world and you have some discretionary income? You don't have to raise your hand, but all of us need to raise our hand, don't we? So from now on, our message is directly applied to us at Fellowship Bible Church. And Paul is, through Timothy, instructing the church at Ephesus and the church in Shenandoah Junction. So let's continue on. That's a word about economic prosperity. Who is it? It's those who have much of this world's goods and who have some discretionary income. By the way, before we move on, I thought it would be valuable to take a minute and just have a little parentheses in our message here. And I had a thought that I want to present to you that will help us in our development of this passage. And it is this. I think that there is reason to believe, based upon the teaching of Scripture at large that Christians should, of all people, be trending towards financial prosperity. Let me say that again. This is valuable instruction to the rich because, of all people, people who are believers in the Lord Christ and the Word of God should, on the trajectory of their lives, be trending towards economic prosperity. Let me... Let me tell you why I think that. Number one is because the days of expensive, costly, sinful living are over. If you are in Christ, the days of costly, expensive, sinful living are over. I have no idea how much my punk friends in high school spent on their beer, their marijuana, their cars that they would wreck regularly, gambling, you know people at the office who are gambling in March Madness or in the, the NBA playoffs or in the football season. They're gambling. They're losing money. you got people. Listen, if you're in Christ, you ought not to be doing any of that stuff. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You have, you have no idea how much money you've run through in your past life. Some of the times you can't even remember when you were partying and started spending money. Kind of like the prodigal son 
when he left home with his father's inheritance and he went off and there's just one line in the story in Luke 15 and he spent all that he had in riotous living. Riotous living is a very expensive lifestyle. And when you're in Christ, that stuff ought to not be going on. So I think, number one, Christians have put behind them the expensive, sinful costs of a lifestyle outside of Christ. Number two, as we are growing in our sanctification, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that all of us have been made new in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. That's a new way of thinking, a new worldview, a new value system. We have the instruction of our New Testament, both the model of Jesus, the instruction of the apostles, and number two, our appetite for wasteful excesses should be very curbed as Christians. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about a guy I just talked to the other day whose wife was so mad at him because he had put $1,800 on the credit card for a big flat screen TV. Listen, if you're right with God and you're walking with the Lord and you're thinking biblically, it doesn't mean you can't have a big flat screen TV, but it means if you can't afford it, you can't have it. And you ought to have enough sense now under the direction of the Holy Spirit, under the instruction of the church and the word of God to know better than those decisions. And so you're trending towards a controlled environment financially in your home. You can stand in front of a in front of a flat screen TV or the new latest whatever kind of technology and you're drooling out the sides of your mouth and you're thinking your heart your heartbeats accelerated and I really want it, I want it, I want it, I really want it, I want it. But in Christ I can look at it and say, you know what? I, I don't need that right now. And the Lord will take care of us, and if He wants in, I can start saving my money and I can say no to my fleshly appetites that are not necessarily sinful. And so, therefore, I ought to be able to control that part of my accounting budget. And in the old days, if I wanted it, I would swipe the card and I have guys I know four or five or six credit cards with anywhere from three to 10,000 on the credit cards. Why? Because of, because of the appetites of the flesh that live in excess that a believer in the Lord Christ should be saying, that's the old way. I don't do that anymore. Even if it's good stuff. You follow me? Thirdly, I want to suggest that the biblical principles of financial wisdom really work. Do you know that our Bible is filled with illustrations and examples, particularly the book of Proverbs, on how to manage your money? Janet and I joined the Financial Peace University that Kevin Tucker teaches repeatedly here. It's Dave Ramsey. He's become very popular even in the secular world. And this is our workbook. And you know, this little workbook right here, I want to say it's worth its weight in gold, but it's probably not. But um, I, I wanted to take the class for a couple reasons. One is, it's repeated here regularly, and when things are repeated regularly, I like to know what they're like and what, what they do. And I had never gone through it, and we're promoting it from the platform, so I wanted to go through it. And secondly, I needed a personally a boot in the britches in this area of just... You know, Janet and I have done a pretty good job of spending less than we make. But just in the busyness of life, not paying attention to my resources like I should, and how motivational this has been, and how biblical and how helpful. To the degree, I said this week, I said to Janet, I said, every person in our church should take Financial Peace University. Even if you've got your act together. Why? Because he will motivate you to pay better attention 
to the biblical principles of financial and life management so that you can grow in your resources so that you can respond to the preaching and teaching of Timothy to us through the Apostle Paul that we are to be rich in good works. And if I'm in debt, I cannot be rich in good works. And we are, by definition, wealthy people. Beyond covered up with stuff of the world and have much residual extra incomes besides our food and our clothing and our covering. A couple other quick thoughts and we'll move on is the blessing of faithful stewardship and generous giving is a reason why Christians should be trending towards prosperity. Let me say that again. The blessing that God gives you when you are faithful in stewardship and giving That is, if you live as a steward, that is, I don't own anything. God owns it. And I want to be an excellent steward of this stuff. And I'm generous in giving. Paul clearly taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 6, he said, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, this verse is hugely abused by the health and wealth preachers. And the, and the perverted gospel preachers that are of the devil. And they say, if you just put down that seed, it'll grow and you'll be wealthy. And they're talking about driving around in a pink Cadillac with purple polka dots and a big straw hat and that you're living high in the hog. Listen, I'm telling you, financial wealth is not always a sign of God's blessing. A lot of pagans are financially wealthy. A lot of people have found out that are financially blessed and very wealthy that it was the greatest curse of their lives. Go to Malawi, using that as an illustration again, and you'll find the one, some of the most wonderful, blessed people in the, on the planet. And they hadn't, don't even have enough money to eat. But we live in a country that is established on biblical principles of economics, and they work and so we have, we have, through the wisdom of our founding fathers, been able to build on a resourceful people and a, and a mindset and a worldview taught in our country, by and large, it's falling apart now, but by and large, that we need to be good stewards of the earth, we need to, and that we can take a forest, for example, cut down the trees, and we can build stuff, and we can better ourselves, and we can dig in the ground, and we can pump oil, and we can take care of things. If you go to Malawi, they weren't taught that stuff, they stripped the land, it's, it's just terrible, there's no animals, there's no trees, they're, now they're on a big reclamation program where they're growing trees again, but their whole system based on a dictatorial abusive system fell apart flew apart we've had two year 200 plus years of prosperity because of a biblical foundation that was laid as far as economics go and resourcing ourselves and and so my point is that we are living in a in a tremendously privileged window of history in america as americans So I'm not saying that this 2 Corinthians 9, 6 verse says that if you just sow, throw it out the window, that God will bring it back more bountifully. But the point that Paul's teaching is that God gives us resource that when we are a blessing, you cannot outgive God. And you'll see that God will replenish your storage tanks as you begin to give and as you begin to be a faithful steward, God will give back to you. And he will enable you to keep giving. It's remarkable how it works. 
Finally, let me suggest that Christians ought to be trending towards economic prosperity simply because, number five, of the biblical work ethic. There is a work ethic promoted in Scripture that will trend towards prosperity. Number one, we're taught by the Apostle Paul very clearly that we are, if at all possible, we are to work if we're going to eat. Number two, the Apostle Paul taught the Colossian believers very clearly that we're to get out of bed on Monday morning and go to work and we are to work heartily as unto the Lord. In fact, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Listen, of all people in the world who ought to be good employees and productive and making things happen on the job front are believers in the Lord Christ because we are to look at our boss and our managerial system above us as if it were the very Lord Jesus we were working for every day. We're not to be lazy. We're taught about slothfulness in Proverbs. And so for these reasons and more, Christians ought to be trending towards economic prosperity. But what happens is we're pressed into the mold of the world and we think like the world and we act like the world and we're just as stuck in the ruts of financial mismanagement as the world is. Well, let's go back to the text now and and let's just uh, click off here what we're looking at in Paul's teaching. First of all, his word about economic prosperity is that there are wealthy people in the church. You don't have to be ashamed of that, but you are to receive a charge. Verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. The second statement we want to make from this passage is that the wealthy are to, number two, watch out for the illusion of superiority. Watch out for the illusion of superiority. What's he talking about here? If you've got poor people in the church and you've got rich people in the church and you're driving in in your fancy car and you've got your nice suit on and they don't have very much, you know what, human, humanly speaking, in the flesh, our tendency is to look over and say, man, I'm really glad I'm not them. And I also think I'm a lot smarter than they are or they'd be where I am. And Paul says, knock it off. Knock it off. James clearly taught about the fact that if somebody is of a lesser degree than you, comes in socially lower than you, and they come in, do not ever show favoritism to the rich person over the poor person. Telling the one, come sit by me, and telling the other to go sit down here by my feet. The church is to be a great place of love and a melting pot of social relationship. The Apostle Paul says rich people have a tendency to be haughty thinking that they built their own kingdom. Proverbs says that the wealthy man imagines his wealth as an unscalable wall. He thinks that he's really strong. He forgets what is the source of all good things. It's also kind of funny how people are. I've known guys like this. They don't hardly, they don't hardly, that is not good grammar. They hardly... They hardly own anything. They hardly own anything that they have. In other words, they, they don't own their truck. The bank owns their truck. They don't own their house. The bank owns their house. They don't own their swimming pool. The bank owns their swimming pool. They don't own hardly anything. And they think they're really cool. They think they're really smart and got it together. And so they go over to some, you know, to Aunt Matilda's house or to their neighbors, and, and they just happen to like their carpet from 1974. Shag's a good thing. It lasts a long time. 
And they don't want to replace it with ceramic tile. They don't want to redo their basement. They're happy with it just the way they are. And they own their basement shag carpet. But the rich guy will look at the other person just because they went out and bought something and think that somehow they're superior because they have better stuff than this person. That's how our minds work. Paul says, you command those that are rich, number one, to watch out. Do not have this illusion of superiority. Number two, it is a warning about financial uncertainty. It is a warning about, number three, a a warning about financial uncertainty. Look what he says. Warn them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope in the uncertainty of riches. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, If you look at your riches, they will take wings and fly off and fly away. And it's here one day and it's gone the next. In the last few years in America, it's been really unstable in the financial markets and people are feeling this. I don't know if I'm wealthy or not. I've talked to people who had a plan. They were going to retire. They were going to move here. And then all of a sudden, the, the economy collapses. And oh, I got to keep working. I don't have money. All one day I had money, the next day I don't have money. So watch out, rich people, for an illusion that you're somehow superior and having a haughty spirit. Number two, watch out too for the uncertainty of these finances. Number three, you need to know in the middle of all this that wealth. Number four, I'm off on my numbers here this morning. Number four, wealth is about more than security. Wealth is about more than security. Look what he says. Who richly provides the end of verse 17. Do not, do not put your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There you go. You can go buy a fishing pole and go fishing. And be right with Jesus. You can go on vacation to the beach and spend a week and even eat pizza while you're there and enjoy it and not feel one bit guilty about it because God provided it for you to enjoy. Just make sure you can afford it. Just make sure you know you're a steward of it. Make sure you've thought it all through and make sure that what you're doing is pleasing to God, rich people. Wealth is about more than just security. It is about enjoyment. Notice, fifthly, that we are to be characterized by a willing generosity. We're to be characterized by a willing generosity. They are, verse 18, to do good and to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Three things. Number one, you're to be good. Number two, you're to be rich in good works and generous. And number three, you're to be ready to share. Believers in the Lord Christ, who have been resourced so nicely, especially in the United States should be very generous and sharing people. That's why God gave it to us. To help one another, to help the churches around the world. And we are to be characterized by a willing generosity. Proverbs says that he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You know, you cannot outgive God. You just can't. Are you a person of refreshment to those in need around you? Finally, we're to work hard to lay up treasure for eternity. Look what he says. They are, verse 18 again, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. He's talking about eternity future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know what is reality? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says... The things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen. 
And we're to lay up treasures in the spiritual way in heaven with the material wealth, money, and goods of this life. They are to be used to accomplish spiritual things for eternity. There's a great teaching on this in Luke 16. We don't have time to go there. But in Luke 16 was that guy whose manager was going to fire him. And he says, what am I going to do? I can't dig ditches. I don't have a job. He goes and rewrites all the contracts so that when he did get fired because of his laziness and mismanagement, everybody that he rewrote their contracts would invite them over for dinner because he's a good guy because he saved them money on their contracts with his boss. Remember that? That's where Jesus commended him for being shrewd. Not for being dishonest. He wasn't dishonest, but he was really shrewd. He worked the system according to the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And Jesus teaches clearly in that Luke 16 passage. Number one, he teaches, he said, do this so that someday when you enter eternity, you will have people there that your resources enabled them to get there. They will welcome you to your heavenly dwelling. To get to heaven and have people say, hey, because you gave, you changed my life. Secondly, that's the passage where Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. Let me remind you of the word that Paul used to Timothy when he started into this passage in verse 17. He says, Timothy, charge them not to be haughty. Charge, don't run after them. Challenge them boldly. Confront them with words so that they will not be haughty, so that they will not trust in riches. They will trust in God who gives us all things to enjoy, that they will do good things and be generous. Paul is telling Timothy that as a pastor in the church, he's to go to the wealthy people and use words to challenge them to give more. Remember our premise that I built on our first point that all of us in this room are rich? I'm here this morning challenging myself and you. We need to give more. We need to be better stewards. We need to come in under the Lordship of Jesus Christ with all that we have so that we will be doing good works and give more. What would happen at Fellowship Bible Church if we began to to live for eternity for real? And we come in under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we begin to restrain the fleshly appetites and we live with an eternal perspective. I'm not saying go paint your houses gray. I'm not saying fill in your swimming pools. I'm saying enjoy it all. But I'm saying you better get your household in order so that God can use you to bring refreshment to the church around the world and the needs here. Would change us, wouldn't it? Would change us. Well, there's the instruction. Charge them who are rich. I only remember one time in my ministry where I walked up to a guy that I knew had resources and I said, I want to talk to you a minute. There's an opportunity here that God's work could really be enhanced if you would give generously to it. I carefully evaluated my words. This happened some time ago. Because I wanted to make sure my motives were pure. And I I have been convicted by this passage in the past that as pastors, one of our jobs and spiritual leaders is to challenge people of wealth to use it properly. It's an appropriate role of the pastor. Not supposed to know your financial framework, but if we recognize that there's resource there, we want to help you. I'm doing this to my whole church today. Let's work together to use our resources, to be used of God under the Lordship of Christ 
storing up for eternity as he opens our eyes to the needs around us, that we would be generous and sharing and benevolent. Father, we look to you for wisdom to know how to live in this complicated world today. Um, Lord, we want to trust in you more. We recognize that you have blessed us in so many levels, and there is a broad spectrum of, of people and resource in this room. And so show us all how it looks in our home and at our household, and, and just teach us, Lord. Open our eyes so that we see things with a biblical reality, so that we see things through the lens of eternity, Father. And Father, would you give hope to those who feel like they can't dig out from underneath their debt load or underneath the decisions of the past? Would you renew their hearts today? Open their minds and encourage them and show them how to find help and how to begin to turn the ship that we would respond to this valuable teaching today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.